All right. Well, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, looking at the coming Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, announcing the coming of His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Our Lord is going to be charging us and encouraging us to fix the eyes of our heart, to set our gaze on things that are eternal, to trust that our Father knows best, to live life fully for that which will truly satisfy, which is the kingdom of heaven, and to make wise, eternal investments. Jesus is comforting us this morning. He is commanding us this morning with this simple truth that our Father in heaven knows best, and we ought to fully trust him. If there was a golden thread or a melodic line that I see in this text, it would be this. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You cannot serve God and money. Your Father knows you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so I've taken this melodic line of Jesus and I've divided it into two points. Point number one, undivided devotion. And point number two, uncompromising trust. So please pray with me as we ask our Father in heaven to help us. Gracious God and Father, we thank you so much for this day, this Father's Day, Lord, that we are fathers because you are our good Father in heaven and you have given us life and breath. And we thank you for that life. We thank you for that breath you've given us. We thank you for, for those that, us, uh, that are fathers, Lord. We thank you for um, giving us a wife and giving us children, Lord. It's a gift. But Lord, every one of us here has a father, an earthly father, Lord. And we, we know that with that comes many Many blessings and, and many, in many respects, many pains, Lord. But Lord, we do pray that today we would look to you as our good Father. That even if we may be estranged from our earthly Father, we know that you are a good Heavenly Father who has given us so much in the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So Father, we ask that you would help us to see you clearly today. Jesus said that if we saw him, we saw the Father. And so we ask that you would guard us and keep us from the evil one, that you would illuminate our eyes and our hearts, Lord, to, to see what you would have for us in your word, to see Jesus as all of Scripture is testifying to the gospel of God's saving grace. So again, Lord, we thank you for this time that you have ordained for us to sit under the preached word, Lord. Help us to be hearers of the word, and help us to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. All right, so point number one, undivided devotion. In verses 19 to 24, we see Jesus expound one singular theme, undivided devotion. And yet he illustrates this singular point with three analogies, two treasures, two visions, and two masters. And I'm actually gonna work our way backward through these three analogies. So we'll start with two masters and then two visions, and then finally two treasures. So verse 24, actually let me read the whole text, and then we'll jump into verse 24. So 19 through 34 is what I'm going to be reading. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen? So let's go back to verse 24 and look at two masters. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Two masters, God and money. Throughout the entirety of these verses, we find these two masters juxtaposed. We must pledge allegiance to one or the other. We are not free agents. We are either subject to God or subject to money. We are either going to trust our Father in heaven or money. Since the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he has been preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And kingdoms have a king. So who is the king? Jesus. And he rightfully as king demands, commands our undivided devotion and allegiance. And he says that if you've seen us, you've seen the Father. And our Father is commanding us to trust him with undivided devotion. For a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Now, perhaps you don't like this idea of undivided devotion. You, you buck against the idea of a king telling you what to do and making you swear allegiance. Well, let's bring it down a level and see if we can relate to it on a, on a different plane. So take undivided devotion and allegiance out of the kingdom realm and perhaps into something more familiar for you, like sports. Portland Timbers. Now, as my wife will attest, I am not a soccer fan, but I do know a little bit about the Timbers. Diego Valeri, he's one of the Timbers' best players, right? Okay. <laughs> Amen. Well, yesterday they played the Colorado Rapids. Wasn't the best game. But let's imagine during that game... 
late in the second half, Valeri takes off his Timbers jersey, throws on a Rapids jersey, just for a few minutes, mind you, just enough to score a point for the Rapids. How would the Timbers fans have responded? Yeah, probably more than that, right? How would his teammates have responded? His coach, the owner, or perhaps a marriage level, husband and wife. Are you really serious about those vows where you say forsaking all others to cleave only to him or her as long as you both shall live? Isn't it okay once in a while to go out and have a one-night stand? Your spouse wouldn't mind that, right? Or dads. You wouldn't mind it if today your kids decided to give their Father's Day cards and gifts to their friend's dad instead of you. You're cool with that, right? Of course not. In family, in marriage, in sports, in so many arenas of life, we fundamentally believe in this idea of allegiance and devotion. So allegiance and devotion to one's family, one's spouse, even one's team is actually serious business. Divided allegiances, divided devotions will destroy you and the community that you're a part of. And so when we look at the kingdom of heaven, which is what Jesus is talking about, our calling as Christians, as followers of Jesus, the king, we ought to see how serious, right, and good this call to undivided devotion to King Jesus is. I pledge allegiance to the Lamb of God. I pledge allegiance to the Lion of Judah. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 2, kiss the Son or pay homage to the Son. Anything else than undivided devotion will lead to destruction. But why? Why can't we serve two masters, God and money? Well, Jesus says we'll grow to hate one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. Why? Because their visions for your life are completely different. So two visions. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye is the lamp of the body. What we fix our gaze on governs what we do with our lives, how we live, where we go. What we focus on and pursue reveals the deep devotions of our heart. It shows what we love. What is your vision for your life? Where are you headed? Is your eye focused on the kingdom of heaven or accumulating earthly wealth? Can it be both? Not according to Jesus. Paul warns us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and that by pursuing it, by fixing our eyes on the accumulation of wealth, Some have wandered away from the faith. Your vision, your gaze must be singular, undivided. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now, a helpful way to better understand this, this is obviously Jesus is making an analogy, so we're going to take that analogy and kind of make another analogy to help us understand what exactly he's trying to say. But to better understand it, for me at least, is to replace the word eye with the word goal. And replace the word body with the word life. If your goal is healthy, what you are looking at, your vision, your whole life will be full of light. But if your goal is bad, your whole life, your whole body will be full of darkness. If our lives are dictated by the goal of wealth and more money, our lives will be bad, full of greed and selfishness. But if our goal is healthy, our life will be full of light. Well, what is this word healthy. It's actually a really interesting word. It means unfolded. 
single, literally without folds, undivided. It's not divided. One Greek dictionary describes it as without a secret double agenda. The same word is used by James in James chapter 1 when he refers to God as being the God who gives generously to all without finding fault. That word generously is the same word as the word healthy here in Matthew. It speaks of God being liberal, being generous, being singularly focused to give wisdom to those who ask. He is not duplicit. There's no double agenda with God. He has resolved to give wisdom. He has set his affection, his vision, his gaze on you. We serve a God who is not divided towards wanting to bless his children and shower his people with wisdom and grace. We serve a generous, giving God. Our Father truly knows best. Our vision, our eye, our goal ought to be the same. If our goal is to be healthy, is to be generous to others and undividedly devoting to, devoted to blessing them, or is our goal going to be greedy and selfish and hoarding wealth and money for ourselves, for selfish ambition and vain conceit? The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to gain. Turn my eyes from looking at vanities and give me life in your ways. And yet if our vision, our eye, our goal is greedy, divided, distracted, full of loveless darkness, then our lives will never come into focus. In our bodies, our lives will be torn apart. In a comical way, it's like that Volvo commercial with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Anybody seen it? Maybe not. Okay. He's doing the middle splits between these two semi-trucks, these huge Volvo semi-trucks, And we think that we can do that. We think we can go through life with two visions for our lives. But as these two massive semis barrel down the road and they begin to diverge, they begin to divide, we foolishly think that we have the ninja Van Damme-like skills or the gumbo legs to keep it all together. But it simply isn't true. There's actually a spoof of that with Chuck Norris, which is even funnier. So I know what you'll be doing this afternoon. (laughs) But our lives need singular, healthy, generous, focused vision. Our focus reveals where our devotion and our allegiances lie. If money's our God, no matter how much we scratch, the itch will never be satisfied. Ecclesiastes, he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. Proverbs, do not acquire wealth, do not toil, excuse me, to acquire wealth. Be wise enough to desist. When your eyes light upon it, it is gone. For suddenly it takes to itself wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Or as a 19th century German philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, Schopenhauer, so poetically said, wealth is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier we become. If money is your God, if it is an idol in your life, enough will never be enough. And you will never cultivate a robust theology of risk. What do I mean by that? Well, money promises you the illusion of security, of stability, of insulation from pain and discomfort. Further removed, bigger house, fill in the blank. Air conditioning, I mean, we want comfort and money provides that. So if Jesus promises that in this world you will have trials and suffering and hardship, and money promises you insulation and security from all those yucky things, then as you try to follow Jesus and serve this money idol, your risk factor 
is always going to be trumped by the love of money. You may even couch it with wanting to be a good steward, be fiscally responsible, be that proverbial aunt, to leave an inheritance for your children's children, all of which are good things. But those things may often hide a reluctance and an unwillingness to step out in faith, to take a risk and trust God to provide. Is Jesus Lord? Does your father truly know what's best? Does he have your undivided devotion? Does he have your undivided devotion that will empower you to take risks for the sake of the kingdom of God? A former pastor of mine had a generous vision. For much of his life, he was a successful tradesman. He was an electrician. And he loved Jesus, loved the church. He and his wife had three kids. They adopted two kids, striving by God's grace to seek first the kingdom. And they lived a fairly middle-class lifestyle, owned their own home, comfortable neighborhood. And one day, he and his wife became aware of a great missionary need. And when this need arose, he and his wife sought the Lord with great care and and prayer and, and counsel as to what their family should do. You know what they did? They sold their house and they gave a large chunk of change to this missionary endeavor and went back to being renters. In the world's eyes, and perhaps even in your fiscally responsible eyes, as you hear me tell this story, he went backwards. What was he thinking? I find it difficult too. Would Megan and I do that? Could we do that? Would that be a wise thing to do? But again... Jesus calls us to follow him, and following him will often involve risk. And if money is an idol, if our goal towards money is greedy insulation, then we will have a very weak and an impotent theology of risk and generous living. So I commend this brother for his generous vision, for his undivided devotion. And I pray that if God calls you or me to a similar financial risk, that we would be devoted to King Jesus, that we will trust him and store our treasures in heaven. It may not mean we have to sell our house, but it may be. Who knows? Maybe you have to sell your car. Maybe you have to sell, who knows? Or maybe you have to take a different job that doesn't pay as much. Listen to Martin Luther as he speaks of our desperate need for the gospel to inform our views of money. Apostasy from the gospel must make a man so possessed by the devil that he simply cannot be greedy enough. And on the other hand, whoever really has the gospel in his heart becomes mild. Not only does he stop scratching, but he also gives everything away and is willing to risk whatever he can and should. So again, to clarify, Jesus is not speaking against wealth. He is speaking against the love of money, against coveting and holding on to good things that God has given us and turning them into idols that will enslave us. As John Stott says, Jesus does not prohibit being provident, planning, making provision for the future, but rather being covetous. Many godly people have great wealth. And the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, perhaps some of you have been going there as I've been challenging you a little bit, maybe financially. He encourages those who are rich to be rich in good works, generous, willing to share, storing up treasures, for themselves. And that treasure is implying treasure in heaven, not treasure in earth. And so friends, on a global standard, probably all of us are in that rich category. We are the 
But again, the issue is not the amount of money, but where our devotion lies, okay? It's not the amount of money. It's not whether you sell your house or you sell your car. It's about where your heart is, where your devotion lies. You could be making minimum wage right now, eking out an existence. And this warning against the love of money could be more for you this morning than it is for a brother or sister here making the six or seven figures. What matters is where your allegiance and your devotions of your heart are. Is our goal, our eye, generosity or greed? Who dictates your vocation, God or money? Who dictates your vocation? Do you just get to pick your vocation or does God? The word vocation means calling. That implies that someone else is calling you and you're responding to that call. What is God calling you to? What is your vocation? Who's dictating it, God or money? Riches promise an illusion of what the good life is, but as Christians whose eyes are fixed on Jesus and his gospel, we hear our Lord's marching orders. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And friends, that is something we have to continually tell ourselves because the world is telling us a different story. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed. You will be more happy if you give than if you hoard and if you just constantly are seeking to grasp earthly wealth. We must have a singular vision, which leads us to our two treasures. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't lay up treasures on earth. Some commentators say it should be translated, stop laying up treasures on earth. Thus implying that this nagging temptation towards earthly hoarding is resident in all of us. And so our Lord is continually encouraging us and commanding us to stop it. Well, why? Why shouldn't I lay up treasures on earth? Because our Father in heaven knows what's best. And he is telling us not to. It, could, it should be as simple as that, right? I'm sure you've done that with your, parent, with your kids. Like, why? Because I said so. Because I'm your dad. Because I love you. You should trust me. But really, it is a bad investment. Natural evil, moth and rust, human evil, thieves will destroy your wealth and steal it. It won't last, so don't do it. But you may say, we're creatures driven by this desire for treasure. We're, we're driven for this desire for, for reward and for, for pleasure, for being first or whatever, winning. Is that a bad thing? Should we simply not desire treasure or pleasure or desire rewards? No. The problem isn't desire for treasure or pleasure. Christianity is not stoic. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Kantian virtue for virtue's sake religion. Rather, biblical Christianity is it is more blessed to give than to receive. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Taste and see that the Lord is good. In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The desire for treasure and pleasure is not the problem here. It's the direction of those desires for treasure and pleasure. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Another way you could say that, lay up for yourself treasures in God or treasures with God. 
Don't get distracted by fool's gold. Don't get hoodwinked by the carnival crazies. Don't. Don't settle for mud pies in the slums when your Father in heaven promises you a holiday at the sea. Store up treasure in heaven. Undivided devotion to Jesus will not disappoint. Will not disappoint. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, happy, fully satisfied is the man who takes refuge in him. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, Jesus loves his disciples. Our Father knows best. And our Father in heaven loves us. He knows what we need. And he does not want our lives to be a disappointment. He doesn't want us to make lame investments. He is the wise investor, the true financial consultant, and he is offering sound advice that you can truly take to the bank. Remember Jesus in John 14, right before his departure, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Amen. That is a promise, brothers and sisters, that you can take to the bank. Now let me eddy out here a bit. I used to be a rafting guide and eddy is the side of the river where you go and you just slow down. That's not a person. Let me eddy out here a bit and speak uh, about mission, right? Some actually would say that this text is speaking specifically to itinerant missionaries or itinerant ministers to encourage them to trust the Lord for provision. One of the soundest investments we can make in the kingdom of God is investing in the eternity of souls. A famous mission mobilizer once wrote, only that which we invest in the eternity of souls will last forever. Only that in which, only that which we invest in the eternity of souls will last forever. Now, I would probably nuance that a little bit as anything done under the lordship of Christ for his glory will not be lost. Anything done. But I do appreciate the brother's right emphasis and focus. The only things that will last, that will survive this earth are the souls of men and women. The souls of men and women. Everyone in you has a soul that is everlasting. Even though when you die, these trees will probably still be here. Eventually, those trees will go away. It's a thing called entropy. And your soul will last forever. If you trust in Jesus to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Every human on the face of this earth has a soul that will last forever. So investing in souls for the kingdom of heaven is a sound and a wise investment. So make wise investments. Invest in the good news of Jesus coming to those who have never heard. As the Proverbs write, he who wins souls is wise. A life and a death that captured this simple truth so well was the life of Jim Elliot and the lives and deaths of Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Peter Fleming, and Ed McCulley. Most of you know the story of these faithful saints and their work down in South America. If you don't, you're missing out. Young people, old people, in between. If you've never read Through Gates of Splendor, Through Gates of Splendor, 
please add that to your summer reading list. Even if you've seen the movie version, read the book, okay? Elizabeth Elliot, wife of Jim Elliot, beautifully writes about these five men and their families who left the comforts of the United States to bring the gospel to the warring native tribes in the Amazon jungle. I won't take time to tell this story, but there is a line from Jim Elliot's journal that after his death would come to be the clarion call of these martyrs' undivided devotion to Jesus. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliot and those dear saints in Ecuador were wise. They laid up treasures in heaven which nothing temporal could steal or destroy. And through that light momentary affliction, they received an eternal weight of glory. So how do you and I store up treasures in heaven? Do we need to sell our possessions and travel to far distant lands? Perhaps move into the not so nice part of town for the sake of being a gospel witness? Perhaps pursue a vocation or a calling not for money's sake, but for maximum impact and return in the kingdom of God? What does it look like to store up treasures in heaven? Maybe it simply means spending less or even saving less and giving more away. God knows, and God will lead and guide, and God will convict us all. But here's the simple question. Have you and I pledged our undivided devotion to King Jesus? If so, then every inch of our lives is under the supremacy of Christ, so that whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. And if we do that, we are storing up treasures in heaven. And yet again, speaking about the souls of men, Speaking about the souls of men under this preeminent umbrella of Christ's lordship of all of our lives, whatever you do to the glory of God is not wasted. Let me make a charge towards missions. In a parallel text in Luke 12, Jesus is again teaching his disciples to store up treasure in heaven, not to be a fool, but to not building bigger and bigger barns on earth and and yet not being rich towards God. And in verse 32, chapter 12, Jesus says these powerful and very comforting words. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, who are the needy? No doubt the needy are endless. The poor old man on the side of the road begging for change. The single working mom struggling to make ends meet. The refugee family that recently arrived in Portland. The needy are endless. And yet hopefully as Christians we would all, we would all agree that one of the neediest groups of people are those who have never heard about Jesus, those who have no gospel witness, who are dead in their sins and they're separated from Christ and his loving light kingdom. Hopefully, if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. And that is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And that salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among man by which we may be saved. 
Friends, hell is real. Time is short. And Jesus calls us to go and to be his witnesses and to make disciples, to celebrate and display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. In our world, there's roughly 7.2 billion people. And it is estimated that 40% of those 7.2 billion are members of unreached people groups. Unreached people groups is usually defined as a people group where less than 2% of the population are Christians. That's approximately 2.9 billion people that are unreached. In a recent mission study, it was estimated that around $31 billion is given annually to missions. And only 1% of that 31 billion, so 310 million of that is given to missions among unreached people groups. So 2.9 billion unreached people receive 1% of the annual monies given to missions, while the remaining 60% receive 99% of the annual missions giving. It's staggering. Now, obviously, statistics vary. Don't be cynical to the point of not believing statistics. They obviously vary, but numerous studies do reveal very similar data regarding the amount of money spent on reached people groups versus the amount spent on unreached people groups. So if you've not considered giving financially to missions among specifically unreached people groups, those who are definitely needy, then may God move your heart this morning to store up treasure in heaven. Just read the text and believe it. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, and you'll store up treasures in heaven where no moth or rust destroy, where thieves won't break in and steal. And as you do that, you will find your heart drawn to those places and people and that mission more and more. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And perhaps your heart is not there. Then prayerfully and joyfully give. And as you begin to faithfully and habitually give, it will shape your affections. And your heart for the kingdom of heaven, for the unreached people groups, will begin to grow and grow and grow. It's a really simple principle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things you worry about are the things that you invest in. We're going to get to worry here in a second here. So invest in the kingdom of heaven. Invest in reaching unreached peoples with the gospel. Point number two uncompromising trust. So in light of our call to be undividedly devoted to King Jesus, it brings with it a certain opportunity for worry. If I have to let go of the love of money and money provides this illusion of insulating me from from harm and discomfort and pain, then if I'm to fully follow Jesus, how are my basic needs going to be met? These things cost money. Well, let's go back to our text and let's read verse 25 through 34. Therefore, this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is telling us, he's telling his disciples not to be anxious, but to trust their good heavenly father. Father knows best. Father knows best. This word anxious appears six times in this section. The word literally means to be drawn in opposite directions, to be divided and pulled apart. An analogy that came to my mind as I was studying was it's like we're standing between two pit bulls and we're trying to keep our eyes on both of them at the same time. We look to one on the left and then we're afraid of the one on the right. And then we forget about the one on the left, we look to one on the left and then the right. And the left and the right and the left and the right. And we just go crazy. It's, it's, it's a frantic frenzy trying to keep tabs of both these pit bulls. And then another pit bull gets thrown into the mix. Ah! Or it's like trying to spin plates. Keep them from falling. Feels more like plates, you know, more plates are getting added and we're hectic and we're distracted and we're running from plate to plate and it feels like our lives are gonna come crashing down at any second and we will be left a fractured, shattered mess. I'm sure many of you feel like that in different ways and in different degrees this morning. What do we do? What do we do? We lift our gaze. We lift our gaze and we look to our Father in heaven and we learn to trust him that Father knows best. We witness his kind providence, sovereignly governing, governing this created world. We learn to trust that he, he cares about us far more than the birds of the air. We see our extravagant, lavish God who created beautiful works like lilies and roses and birds of paradise. We trust that he not only cares for our souls, but he cares for our bodies, our physical needs. Our Father is not some Gnostic, Right? The created world is not bad. He loves the created world. Jesus holds everything together, by says, by the word of his power. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. His eye is on the sparrow. And it's also on you. And perhaps part of our anxiety is that money is our master. And it is a terrible master. Enough will never be enough. And so we easily find ourselves stuck in this rat race, this human hamster wheel, where the faster you go, the faster the wheel spins. And so the faster you go, and so the faster the wheel spins. And you freak out. Brothers, God knows what we need. As Paul writes to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. Friends, God knows what we need. He is a good father. Jesus is a good master who came to serve us and to lay his life down for us. He can be trusted. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Father knows best. So how do we learn to trust God without compromise? And not be anxious and distracted and pulled apart. Well, in verse 25, Jesus says, do not be anxious. And he's very patient. He gives analogy after analogy. He knows that this is something we all struggle with. 
And he knows that he has the solution to our anxiety. It's not something that you, that you are stuck in. It's not something that you, you are, can't ever be freed from. Jesus calls us to follow him and to cast our cares, our anxieties upon him. And so he gives us this very patient analogy of all these different ways that he provides for the created world. And then down in verse 30, where is it? Very in verse 33, uh, thank you, Lord. Verse 33, so do not be anxious, but seek first the kingdom of God. Do not be anxious, it's a command. Your Father in heaven is commanding that to you. Jesus is commanding that to us as, as Christians. Don't be anxious. But instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Jesus knows we need these temporal things like food and clothing. But they are secondary. First things first. So what does it look like to seek his kingdom? What does it look like? How do you do that? We'll go back to the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. How does he open it up? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We seek first the kingdom by recognizing, by confessing our poverty, our wretched, sinful condition. We can't spin the plates. We can't keep the pit bulls from getting to us. There's too much. We confess that our devotions are divided. Our allegiance to Christ is lazy. We confess that we are anxious, that money is an idol. So we mourn over our sin and our rebellion against our Father in heaven. And we're humbled by how weak and helpless we truly are. And we hunger and thirst for a righteousness that only God can provide. Again, Christianity is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But it's not passive either. It is dynamic. A call to obedience is a call to follow a person. And that takes action. And that takes energy. And it's going to be hard. But that's what Jesus, by his grace, calls us to. And in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, God gives us his righteousness. God gives us himself. Friends, our greatest need has been met. Salvation is a gift we receive by faith, by trusting in Jesus. As we consider, as we meditate, as we think about the good news of the gospel, as we take our thoughts captive to make them obedient to Christ, as we set our mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, as we fix our eyes on this precious treasure, our generous, giving God, we learn to trust him. We learn, it's a process. We learn not to compromise our allegiance and our devotion. As Paul writes in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, D.A. Carson provides this helpful summary. To seek first the kingdom is to desire above all to enter into, submit to, and participate in spreading the news of the saving reign of God, the messianic kingdom already inaugurated by Jesus, and to live so as to store up treasures in heaven 
in the, in the prospect of the kingdom's consummation. The kingdom's consummation. God making all things new. You have what it takes. Christ is in you. His grace is and always will be sufficient for you. And as we've already encouraged these fathers today, I would encourage you to play the man, to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. I pray that your trust in the Lord is uncompromising and that your devotion to King Jesus is undivided. Every day, believe the gospel. Embrace the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself until your soul is happy. May Christ be your treasure. So when the fleeting pleasures of this world tempt you, your cup is full. Your soul is satisfied. Jesus is enough. Be faithful in the small things, brother. Love God. Cling to Jesus. Hate the corruption of the flesh. Pray for your wife. Pursue your wife. Honor her. Listen to her. Lay your life down for her. Pray for your children. Spend time with your children. Honor them, love them, discipline them, have fun with them. He's not giving you a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. And it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. May God give you favor in all your endeavors. May Christ be preeminent in all that you do. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Read the word, pray the word, sow the seeds of the word wherever the Lord has you, in your home, your neighborhood, your workplace, wherever the Lord sees fit to place you. Believe that the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Believe that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So open your mouths to make much of Jesus. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them to obey all that our Lord has commanded us. Love the local church. One final charge. When times are difficult, remember the reality of the resurrection. I really appreciated in God's providence, Joel, you leading that last song Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. I was listening to a sermon this last week from Jim Elliott, actually. It's a very, one of the few that's recorded. And he was speaking on the reality of the resurrection. And he was driving home this necessity that our faith is not substantiated or built upon experience or feeling, but upon the powerful fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Christ literally rose from the dead. He defeated our greatest foe. No obstacle that you face in the weeks or the months or the years ahead will be too great for your risen Savior. So trust, believe, and hold on to that hope in the reality of your risen and your reigning King who has promised to return and make all things new. You are both in His sovereign grip of grace and He will hold you fast. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, our, our Father is trustworthy. Our Father knows best. And I pray that we can learn to cling to Jesus with undivided devotion and with uncompromising confidence and trust. That God has set his gaze on you, that you are safe in his sovereign grip of grace, and that he will bring you home safely to that land where joys shall never end. Amen.
Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the gospel. We're so, so thankful for the testimony of the saints, Lord. That Jesus gave this good deposit to the disciples and they told their disciples and they told their disciples. And then we get men like Latimer and Ridley who made disciples, men like Jim Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot. And here we are, Lord, in 2017, and we're still proclaiming the good news of God's saving grace to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you come again to make all things new. But I pray where there is unbelief in this room that you would bring faith, that Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead. And that is our confidence and that is our hope that we serve a king who conquered death and he is coming again to take those who love him to be with him forever. Help us to trust you, Lord. Help us to worship you and to serve you and you alone. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, I thank you for your patience. We are gonna be taking the Lord's Supper together, remembering what Christ has done in our place and on our behalf. He was the only one, friends, who had uncompromising trust and undivided devotion to the Father. And he provides this meal for us to teach us that we can trust that our Father, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, he will take care of all of our needs. So if you are a Christian, if you confess Jesus, if you've been baptized, if you are a member of a church, if you are plugged into a church, we invite you to come and partake with us in the Lord's Supper. Once you take the elements back to your seat, one of the brothers will lead us in communion.